0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young.
1: But peanuts had become popular because of this movement of New American pastimes that were accessible to, like, the common man or the common, the common person. So baseball and, like, theater halls and circuses, all of those places became places where people were interested in buying peanuts. This week on the show, I talk with
0: Jory Lewis, She's an award-winning journalist and the author of the book, Slaves for Peanuts. It's a book about the natural and human history of the peanut and the role it played in West Africa as the transatlantic slave trade was being abolished. Our conversation is just ahead, stay with us. This is Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young. Whether it's candy bars, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, or roasted peanuts at a baseball game. Americans love their peanuts. In fact, we consume more than 1.5 billion pounds of peanut products each year in the US, which seems like a lot to me considering the hypervigilance around peanut allergies these days. While peanut butter is one of my favorite foods, I can't say that I've given much thought to the peanut as a crop Or paid any attention to its role in history. And I certainly never considered what role peanuts may have played in stories of slavery and freedom in West Africa in the 19th century. My guest today has considered these things in depth. Jory Lewis is an award winning journalist writing about agriculture and the environment. In 2011, she moved to Senegal to study food security as a fellow with the Institute of Current World Affairs. Jory Lewis is a 2018 recipient of the prestigious Whitting Grant for Creative Nonfiction. Her book, Slaves for Peanuts, was published in 2022 by the New Press. She currently splits her time between Senegal and the United States. Illinois, to be precise, which is where she's from originally. I started our conversation by asking how she ended up living in Senegal.
1: So I I sent a proposal that I wanted to go to Senegal and Mali, actually, and write about food security and, you know, research and write about food security. I knew Senegal was a country that was fairly easy to live in. it's very adaptable. I didn't end up moving to Mali because I was so comfortable in Senegal. And then there was a coup in Mali in early 2012. That was really not an option for me anymore. So anyway, that's how I ended up in Senegal once the two-year fellowship ended I had been living before that in New York, freelancing. I was mostly a radio reporter. And I didn't want to go back to New York. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I just ended up staying in Senegal because it's an easy place to, again, it's an easy place to be. And there are a lot of foreign journalists who kind of end up staying there. The visa laws are very Simple. It's it's a, it's just an an easy country in a lot of ways. And now I've been here for so long, and then I got married to a Senegalese citizen. So now I'm, I'm proper. I'm not like uh, just riding under <laughs> riding riding under the radar on 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 loose visa laws. No, I am technically a semi-resident of Senegal. So there you go. Well, I'd love to hear the story of how you got into the
0: topic of your book and what drew you to study the history of the peanut trade or of the peanut in Africa.
1: Food security is kind of like a fancy word to talk about, you know, agricultural markets, essentially. Uh, and how well they 're working, which often they 're not working well it it 's less i think sometimes it initially sometimes people think about food security in terms of of a production issue, but it 's rarely a production issue it 's almost always supply and that 's something I learned quite quickly too, which i 'm not sure maybe did I know that at the beginning of starting this this journey. Uh, and in Senegal, the main sort of agricultural crop for more than a century has been peanuts, right? I say that like you know, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, so there has been peanuts as a kind of main agricultural crop, cash crop, for a long time. So I think even coming when I arrived in Senegal, I wanted to know more about this thing called the peanut trade, the peanut agriculture, how it, how it function. What its role was in society, because yeah, I mean, there have been any number of books sort of written about like sort of Senegal and its relationship to the peanut, right, and its relationship to, you know, there are like religious leaders who became big peanut peanut growers through using the the workforce of their adherents, their 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 followers, let's call them. So I already knew all of that, right? And so I was like, i got to take a look at this, this peanut trade stuff, right? <laughs> you know, So I ended up spending a lot of time in this area called the Peanut Basin uh, in Senegal that it corresponds to a region called the Saloon. And I think everything sort of springs from that decision to kind of to investigate more about peanuts and spend a lot of time in peanut-growing regions. The title of your book is Slaves for Peanuts, a Story of
0: Conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. And I think it's a very provocative title. And I was wondering if you could break it down for our listeners, just starting with what is meant by Slaves for Peanuts.
1: Thanks for that question. It is, um, you know, the Slaves, I, I love a pun, you know. So so I think, like, that was always the working title of the manuscript, even when I when we sold it. And there was some discussion about changing the title of the book, not by me, <laughs> but by my publisher, and I, I resisted because they they felt it was kind of jokey. I didn't hear it that way. I still don't really, you know. They thought like, ah, uh, you know. I'm working for peanuts, kind of like that kind of uh, sort of jokey uh, atmosphere of it. But that wasn't really what I was thinking. It would, it, you know, the book is really literally <laughs> about um, slaves or peanuts. So it's about the way in which the, the commercialization of peanut agriculture in the 19th century sort of extended and supported a system of unfree labor, right? Like a system of enslavement. That accelerated even to the to the, to this part of Senegal during this time, and then you know the it, the title is sort of working it's literal but it's also working on a number of different levels because the then you know throughout the course of the book you learn the enslaved people are also being able to purchase their freedom, f- you know with peanuts right so like peanuts were like buying them they're cultivating peanuts and they're buying peanuts right so there's a kind of uh, uh, multiple ways that the the title works. I think when I first
0: saw it, I had just read a book and interviewed someone about palm oil, and about how the palm oil trade kind of took the place of slavery in some areas when the slave trade became abolished. And so I sort of wondered if that's what it was instead of slaves. We're now doing peanuts. <laughs> like,
1: oh, yeah, very. But that is also true. See, I missed even a layer of meaning, right? Like, you know, there's so many. It's multi layered. It's very complex. Yes, it's true. And I guess even one additional layer of meaning would be that economic systems that are in, that are slaves for peanuts, right? That are that are uh, you know and chained to this like production of peanuts. But yes, as I do explain in in the book, in fact, like the story of palm oil is analogous. Palm oil was being produced further down the coast where palm trees were more common. Palms um, were not as uh, common in this part of West Africa. So it's true. There's the same thing I, I think I discussed in an early chapter. There's this kind of movement leading up to abolition, up to the abolition of the slave trade. You know, there's a conversation about, like, Thomas Clarkson and his briefcase of curiosity of, of products that could replace the slave trade. And palm, I think the palm nut was one of them. You know, I don't think the peanut was in it, but the, the palm nut was there. But the peanut became, sort of played that role for, and for the same reasons that palm oil did in other places in Nigeria, in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, they were growing more palm oil. So the idea was that this is the kind of free market idea that that, that industrialists and thinkers in Europe had. They said that in order to reduce the, the pool of, of enslaved labor, that's essentially, you know, never mind the market for enslaved labor, but it's whatever, <laughs> you know, in order to reduce this pool that we should, that people should be put to work, growing peanuts or cultivating palm trees for palm oil. So like this idea that the commerce that the Western world or that the, you know, it's funny to say Western world, right? Because they're both like basically on the same longitude. So the Northern world had with Africa, that the commerce that the Northern world had with with Africa needed to shift from being based on human flesh to being based on a number of goods that they called legitimate commerce. And so the peanut was one, but also palm oil, rubber later, also not a great story either. So none of these so called replacements for slavery ended up being particularly palatable from 100 years, 150 years of, of time looking back. Yeah. So
0: let's go to the other part of the title a story of conquest and liberation. Can you talk about whose conquest and whose liberation?
1: Uh, the book is also about how colonialism is sort of like creeping in, right? Like it's about the various ways that colonialism emerges in this context, how it it's not really emerged, like operationalized. It is a story of the conquest of this, this place, of this place that was many kingdoms with many different rulers to become a colony. So this the, the book is also the story of that, very much so. And the story of liberation is the liberation of people moving from areas where they are enslaved to, to becoming free. So that fully one third of the book is really about this um, particular mission for, for runaway slaves, refuge for runaway slaves. So runaway slaves are, are running to, in search of their freedom and for, in search of liberation. So it's very much also that story. And how did the peanut crop change history? Ah, that's always a kind of nebulous question for me, of course, you know the peanut crop changed the the sort of commerce represented by the peanut was one uh sort of means by which like the the French kind of like got their tinter hooks into this land called Senegal and then from Senegal into the rest of French West Africa, what they called French West Africa, which is a pretty large swath of Africa, right like you know not insignificant so I think like in a very um, sort of basic level there's that. There's this kind of relationship, this economic relationship that changed part of Africa, so it necessarily changed history, but also also allowed so many European commercial entities also to to enrich themselves in many different ways.
0: Why was the peanut crop central to European colonial ambitions and, and what does that look like?
1: Well, I think it's one of these things that in in West Africa, colonialism sort of like looks a little bit different than we're than say like colonialism looked in America, where there was settler colonialism, or where you know as it looked even in in India or other in several other countries, where or even Kenya, right, like where there was like a proper settler presence. In West Africa, mostly Europeans were settling on the coasts or on islands where they would trade with the interior, right? So they would trade with people in the interior, but they had no territorial control. And so this is part of that. It, their interests are guided by maybe strategic military positions, but also by their merchants, right? Because that's, their, that's the main goal. These are like... It's like mercantile capitalism, essentially, right? So they're, they're there just trading. So that, I think that's part of how the peanut kind of rose to prominence because it's like one product that the merchants in and around Senegal are, are looking for, and that in some ways also drives the strategy, like drives the, the policy.
0: Was the economy surrounding
1: the peanut production and trade, was it dependent on slave labor? You know, I I guess I couldn't say, I'm not sure if I ever saw numbers, like what is the distinction between kind of like how much free and unfree labor there was. But I try to explain in the book that the um, sort of acceleration of peanut production happened really rapidly. So there's a demand for this thing, this thing called peanut oil, for a lot of different reasons, right? For greasing machines, for soap, for table oil, like all of these things, it becomes like a a demand that continues to grow, especially because of industrialization in Europe and because of like all these sort of societal and cultural changes that Europe is going through. So the demand for the peanut expands, but the Senegal and this part of West Africa, which is like really well placed for European market because it's quite close needs to put more land into production, but there aren't enough people, there aren't enough, you know, there aren't enough strong backs to, like, put the labor in. So then there becomes an increased demand for labor for that purpose. But I couldn't venture to tell you, like, how much, you know, was it most of it, was it half, was it, you know, I I don't know. But in any case, it was probably low-cost labor, Yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't tell you how much of the labor that went into increasing peanut production was enslaved. Uh, Otherwise, yeah, Senegal has, um, as many other countries do, have a, I don't know actually if I explained this in the book, but there are many different types of labor systems that are kind of like based on like kinship and reciprocal arrangements. So like you might, if you're a man and you have like nephews, like your nephews might come and work for you and you don't pay them. Right. like You don't pay your nephews, but like maybe they get a portion of the crop or whatever. Later in the book, when I talk about the Navadan and this kind of like semi-share cropping system does sort of mimic that traditional system of working the land with like extended kin. And then like any type of strangers also have to have that same relationship where they don't really they don't get paid, but they might make a little bit of the crop like a percentage. And is the peanut
0: crop native to Africa?
1: No, the peanut crop is or the peanut um plant is is native to South America and it moved to Africa we don't know when but it you know it would have to be after the so-called discovery. My sort of best guess was that it moved rather quickly to this area to like what they call the Guinea rivers. It's interesting a lot of people don't know, but it's, you know, Christopher Columbus, for example, explored the west coast of Africa, or at least this part of West Africa, quite, quite a lot before um, sailing across the ocean to kind of like get a sense of the current. So he, he already had, and many sailors did already have like extant relationships in West Africa before going. So it's true, like maybe maybe even on one of the first trips, they could have brought back this peanut and taking it along with them, peanuts are really easy to transport. And are the conditions in the area particularly s- suited to the crop? The part of Senegal that I focus on in the book, Kajor, um, is a, a sort of sandy soil that is especially well-suited to, to to peanuts, because, of course, peanuts grow underground and you you wouldn't want like a clay soil like a tight pack soil because you couldn't dig up the peanuts really very easily would take you would get a lot of crop loss but like with a light sandy soil, you could kind of pull it up shake it you know yeah
0: and how did the I mean you said it was like a rapid increase in the production of peanuts and how did that change the agriculture and just the land use and the nutrition of that area and that culture
1: I try over the course of the book to show... I'm trying to, like, taking the reader on a journey that they're exploring and learning, you know, throughout the course of the book. So, like, over the course of the book, you you sort of get signs. You're like, oh, you know, people are growing a lot of peanuts. I hear, like, in some places, they're not, like, rotating their crops anymore. I don't know what that means. And then later you learn, like, ah, oh, you know, I hear, like, some places where they, you know, they're having, like, some of strange crop diseases. I don't know what that means, but whatever. We just push into new land. It's fine, you know. So you kind of emerge with the, even a kind of healing, maybe like a farmer of the time or, or a person sort of watching at the time might have felt with not knowing, like in hindsight, what's, what's like sort of proper agricultural techniques to take. So like over time, this sort of expansion of demand meant that they're kind of like um, traditional growing methods whereby they would probably rotate millet to cowpeas to like other other types of crops and like have a robust crop rotation system and fallow system but that starts to break down because there's so much demand even if you don't grow peanuts on your land maybe someone else will come through or some itinerant farmer or some sharecropper or whatever you give them so you can have more money it's like this allure of money but not just an allure of money it's not just that people are greedy it's also at some point there's a kind of structural reason for it. There's debt, there's the there's the head tax, There there are all these things that make it so people are even structurally obligated to grow peanuts. In terms of the nutrition, yeah, so I alluded to this a little bit ago. So the ecological niche that peanuts occupy is the same one that millet does. Millet is the main staple crop of traditionally of of this part of Senegal. But now because of sort of increases in peanut production, people were growing less millet generally. And then there's a kind of, let's call it like colonial economic policy to push people again, to push people to growing peanuts instead of millet. And that over time has really changed the diets of people. Now today, I talk about it in the book, there's a kind of substitution of rice for millet. That happens, I think, first in cities where people are are able to get more rice. And then among a kind of a military class of people, there's this kind of a indigenous military. Like the French, they sort of enlist through various means. They were enlisting African men into these various military units and feeding them rice, right? And so then they kind of figure out, oh, rice is kind of tasty. Rice is also easy to cook. And they like go back to their villages. It's a kind of like rice propaganda, you know? so over time that really has sort of like taken a toll i think on the food system on health systems looking at it today people eat rice every day or they really do they really do and we're talking about white refined rice
0: not whole grain brown yeah,
1: rice yeah not whole grain rice white rice yeah so and it's you know whatever people eat white rice all over the world but it's that it wasn't typically a part of the diet here in this particular part of Senegal. Again, in lower Senegal, in this area called the Casamance. they're big rice growers. They, t- they talk about it all the time, the rice. But you know, but in the, the most of Senegal, it was a millet culture. If
0: you're just joining us, my guest is Jory Lewis, author of the book Slaves for Peanuts, which was published in 2022. It's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about who is eating peanuts and how in present-day Senegal in 19th century American culture, and who the major peanut producers and consumers are today. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. My guest today is the author of Slaves for Peanuts, Jory Lewis. Her book explores how the humble peanut drove the Senegalese economy for more than a century and the role of the peanut in the region following the abolishment of the transatlantic slave trade. Before the break, we were talking about how peanuts had replaced millet as a major crop in Senegal and how millet was a major staple in the Senegalese diet. I was curious about how and when peanuts entered the cuisine of the people who were producing them. Were the peanuts that were being grown, they're mostly being grown to be exported. Is that
1: true? Yeah, I think probably, even today, I think most peanuts are exported. People do eat peanuts, obviously, and they, they, they have for a long time. have also, which I don't cover in the book. I was very sad to not cover it because, of course, there's a peanut soup, like, across West Africa, and Senegal has one. And I, but I couldn't, you know, because the book is about the 19th century, my understanding is, like, this peanut soup, which is called mafe which is a a word that comes from like Bamana. So it's a word that comes from like a Mande language. It seemed to get like an uptick in the 20th century. I can't remember like the 1930s or 40s. So then I couldn't really include it in the book. But But yeah, in the 19th century, you're not seeing or at least the records that I've seen, which again, the records that I see are also colonial records, right? So like what snapshot is it taking a picture of, right? You know, like there are in the archives menus of colonial balls. It's all terrines and, you know, fresh roasts and like, you know, ices, right? So this is not like what everybody is eating. But I mean, from the research that I've done in the 19th century, you're not seeing so much people eating a lot of peanuts in their diet, but you are seeing like some like snack foods, like I mentioned in the chapter where I talk about Rene Calle, and there is there is a large dispute about whether or not he's talking about peanuts in that book or the its cousin the the Bambara groundnut which is what we call it today but i think certainly like he talks about eating a lot of roasted whatever these things are that sounds like peanuts to me you know and in and also talking about there is a kind of cake I talk about it I call it the nineteenth century energy bar, but it is a kind of like millet based cake, but it's not a cake cake it's like a bunch of millet cooked millet typically but held together by like a little bit of honey and some peanuts so like that you can actually still find on certain neighborhoods you might be able to find that it's interesting I mean, I understand that
0: A lot of the demand for the peanut crop had to do with the oil, and so in that sense, it's it is like palm oil, like it's it's being used in industry, not just in food. But also, peanuts are a really nutritious, like they're a nutrient dense food, and you can eat them pretty much straight out of the ground or just roasting them like you don't even have to do a lot to prepare them. So I just found it interesting. If it is replacing millet in some areas, it's not like you're necessarily replacing the crop with a less nutritious crop. But if it's not being consumed there in the community, it's being shipped away, then then I see the problem there in terms of
1: I think it's a a little bit different, right? Because millet's a staple. It's a staple food, right? So, like, you eat staple foods, like wheat, like millet, like rice, in much larger quantities, right, Then you eat the things you eat on top of the millet and rice and, and, you know. So, I mean, in a way it's not analogous, right? So if if peanut's taking up millet crop land, millet does need a lot of land so you can grow a lot of millet because people have a lot of millet to eat, right? Like, you know, and millet really is, in all the records, you can see just millet is the basis of everything, you know? <laughs> you
0: know? It's
1: the grain.
0: It's it's the grain that everyone's eating.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's like every meal, you know, millet and yogurt, millet and meat sauce, millet and, you know, a little bit of whatever. So Yeah, and what
0: you said about peanuts is that they weren't really, as far as you can tell anyway, weren't really a part of the traditional cuisine. So you're not going to, like you said, you're not going to replace Millet with a snack food or with one soup. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, or yeah, it wasn't as well used as it is now. I think it doesn't. It doesn't seem to have been. Although maybe it, you know, it could. Again, like the records are are not with us. It's it's hard to say. Like what are the what are the eating habits of you know 19th century regular peasant people or whatever? Do you know what I mean? Like that's what they would say. They'd be like les paysans. Um, I mean, as far as we can tell, like it there's a lot of millet, sometimes a few peanuts here and there. But yeah. not 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 nearly the proliferation of sauces that have peanuts in them that we have in today in Senegal and most of in a lot of parts of West Africa. That's what I was gonna
0: ask, is what about now? Has it become a part of the cuisine of local people
1: absolutely so peanuts are in so many things it's funny my, my husband is allergic to peanuts <laughs> so then we don't um so i actually have this one dish i really i i, I like a lot um it's called like cherry and boom and so that's where you make a millet based couscous and then you eat it with the and boom and boom is tends to be made from leaves of some kind and usually you use like leaves of the moringa tree uh, but you could also use, like, sweet potato leaves or cassava leaves or something like that. And then it's, like, mixed with this stuff called no-fly, which is a uh, kind of like ground peanut. It's not a paste. It's like peanut flour. Basically, it's like peanut flour. Uh, you mix it together with, like, maybe it could have some meat or fish or whatever, but it doesn't have to. It could have beans, but it doesn't have to, you know. So that's one of my favorite dishes. And now we don't make it anymore unless he's gone, and then I make it. But, um, but yeah, there are others, there are others that have like that peanut flour, some also have peanut butter, you know, so there are desserts, there are, there are all kinds of things that peanuts involve, and also roasted peanuts that are like widely sold on the street, like everywhere. Okay, so they are now kind of integrated. (laughs) Yeah. My, my, my sense is probably that roasted peanut was always there, I think. My sense is that probably even in the 19th century, you could have gotten roasted peanuts on the tree around harvest time. And even maybe after, because peanuts do keep pretty well in good conditions, just depending on like how dry you keep them. You mentioned earlier the peanut basin. Where is the peanut basin
0: and or, or where was it? I mean, is it still considered the Peanut Basin?
1: When I first started looking into this, I was interested in the area called the Peanut Basin today, which mostly correlates with the region of Senegal called the Saloum, which is centered around the Saloum River, which is three or four hours from, from Dakar. In doing research, I realized that the Peanut Basin used to be further north, that there was a peanut basin that was sort of closer to San Luis, which is in the extreme north of the country. Uh, And it's a different climate. It's sandier, it's drier, it's it's quite different. So that was part of what interested me in, in this story, was also to solve the mystery for me about why the Peanut Basin, what we call the Peanut Basin, had moved. Why was it known as something else before, you know?
0: And where are the major peanut producers today? Or who are the major <laughs> peanut producers today? Like, is it still? I
1: think, I'm not even, I am not. haven't looked at the numbers lately, but I mean, it's obviously China is a big producer and the United States is still a big producer. Senegal is still in the top 10 the last time I checked, <laughs> you know, which is earlier this year. I'm sure they didn't get knocked out anytime, anytime recently. They're still in the top 10, but there are, are many other countries that grow peanuts. I think I think the Sudan is on that list. Um, Nigeria even, maybe. There are a number of other countries. Um, Northern Nigeria's climate, it's still a part of the Sahel. It's very similar to Senegal's, right? So it's... Um also a very good place to grow peanuts and the Sudan obviously is like half desert so like you know it's pretty analogous in a in a lot of ways to Senegal as well so i'm sure there are many other places that are top peanut producers but like on orders of magnitude no one comes close to China it's not even really a contest <laughs> and what's kind of shocking too is most of the export crop now today goes to China from Senegal so the chinese people are growing so much more peanuts than anywhere else and also buying more
0: Gosh, that's interesting because I don't really picture Chinese cuisine having a lot of, but
1: maybe it's about the oil. They use a lot of peanut oil because peanut oil is a really good frying oil um, and just like stir fry, I guess, right? Like it's a good um, cooking oil. But in America, the, because we just, we just don't use as much oil, we hear because of the allergies, because of the kind of health and safety measures for children or whatever put into place, so that there's not a lot of peanut oil circulating. So we... In America, don't have forgotten what a great oil it is, actually. It is a really good oil for cooking, you know? So that kind of leads to a question I had is, when did peanuts become
0: really a popular food in the U.S.? And what drove that popularity?
1: That was one of my favorite sort of fun finds. In fact, I mean, you know, so the book is uh, several interwoven narratives, and I was trying very hard to kind of like also... Make them weave appropriately, and so I think that in fact, like the america America was it's it's interesting there was a kind of what they call like a coastwise trade in West Africa with a lot of New England like shipping merchants that were heavily involved in West Africans and it was something I had never really thought about and was one of the kind of things that emerged from this research, but wanting to follow my my main character is this Protestant missionary, Walter Taylor. I was digging into his biography, and when I saw that he had worked for this Boston shipping merchant's merchant house, I kind of, like, dug into, like, what that was about. And and I think that's really—even though Senegal, again, was exporting peanuts, and I knew that, but I wouldn't have maybe dug as deeply into it if Walter Taylor hadn't been intimately involved with this Boston shipping merchant, and it gave me the opportunity to look into this merchant to see, like, well, what was he doing? What was he buying? <laughs> Who was he selling it to? Why were they buying it? Right, like you know. So there, those were all the questions that kind of emerged. So yeah, these New Englander, New England shipping merchants were buying peanuts in West Africa, and mostly in Senegal and the Gambia and parts of, I guess, Sierra Leone, probably also, and bringing them back to America and selling them to exotic fruit nut dealers. <laughs> yes, peanut was an exotic nut even though it was being grown in the south in virginia and throughout the south probably but was getting kind of a boost in virginia at the moment but peanuts had become popular because of this movement of new american pastimes that were accessible to like the common man or the common the common person so baseball and like theater halls and circuses all those places became places where people were interested in buying peanuts. And peanuts nonetheless still retained a kind of like negative association to be called like a peanut eater, you know, the, you know or like the peanut gallery. Like you can see all of those things because they have uh, negative associations and they're also through a sort of chain of associations still linked with, with black people in America who were the principal growers of peanuts, you know, originally, so they had this kind of association. And even when they moved north, they still like were associated with like a lower class and with these lower class pastimes. <laughs> and then eventually became more palatable to a larger class of people. Or maybe a, not a larger class, a more elite class of people. So it became more, it uh, dispersed from the bottom up. So I thought that was an interesting part
0: where it was like, oh, these forms of entertainment. And like you said, they were they were forms of entertainment that were more accessible to lower classes. So the fact that, yeah, I can see the association.
1: So yeah, and it sort of moved on. It's a a little bit complicated, but I wouldn't be able to tell you when it became like more acceptable to everyone to be eating peanuts. I think it would probably not into the 20th century. I would even think probably into the war, like because of shortages. But that's just like random thoughts. I' not I have no I have no proof to back that up, but I would think so. I'm speaking with Jory Lewis. She's the author of the book Slaves for
0: Peanuts: A Story of Conquest, Liberation, and a Crop that Changed History. After a short break, we'll return to our conversation and learn about the challenges of writing a factual narrative with limited historical documents and how she landed on a man named Walter Taylor as a central character for her book. He was a Protestant missionary who ran a mission for runaway slaves in Senegal. That's just ahead on Earth Eats. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Let's get back to my interview with Joy Lewis, author of the book Slaves for Peanuts. So I wanted to ask you to talk a bit more about Walter Taylor, who is a black Protestant missionary from Sierra Leone, and he's an important figure in the book. And I wondered if you could talk about why you chose to include him, or it sounds like he was, he was kind of a central focus for the narrative, or for at
1: least one strand of the narrative. Yeah, thanks for that question. Yes, yeah, so Walter Taylor, there are a few things going on. I mean, when I first conceived of *Slave for Peanuts*, there it was a kind of mm, high concept idea, right? And I didn't know that some of the historical characters I wanted to use in the book, they didn't have enough source material to draw out a proper narrative. So one of those characters is still in the book. This a woman, this woman Nyarbeli, who's a she's a plantation owner. <laughs> she's a slave owner and probably a slave trader. And and grows an enormous amount of peanuts. But I didn't have enough to really bring her alive as well as I would have liked. And there were a couple of others. And I I sort of stumbled upon a mention about this Walter Taylor and his mission for runaway slaves. He ran a mission for runaway slaves in the capital, um, the colonial capital of San Louis. And I had no idea that there had been a mission for runaway slaves in Africa at all, right? Like anywhere on the continent of Africa. It sort of blew my mind. And I started to look into it. Then when I went to France to, like, look at the archives of this mission, I found that there were 20 years of correspondence from Walter Taylor to the director of the Paris Evangelical Mission Society, you know, and so... Yeah, it was the materials in a way that determined his centrality to the book, and then there were some sort of happy surprises that that Walter Taylor once did work for a uh, Boston shipping merchant shipping out peanuts that allowed me a kind of new view on on things to like move in some unexpected directions, but that were still quite relevant, you know. And then he's a kind of. He's a kind of a figure who has a front row view to French colonization, but at the same time doesn't have any stake in it in a way, right? He does and he doesn't because he's a later a naturalized French citizen. But he's, you know, he's from Sierra Leone. He comes from a different place. He has a different perspective. He's he's an insider outsider. He becomes one lens to, to look at the rest, you know? Mm. Yeah, that must
0: have been exciting when you came across that material.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it really was. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the book, you take us along your journey a bit, too, in just sort of discovering information, you know, like this kind of detective work of trying to figure out what was going on and, and how I definitely got a sense of how difficult that kind of work can be, where you were doing it and the time period that you were researching.
1: Yeah, it is difficult. <laughs> and you I mean you're you're just limited to someone told me uh, who someone really did think that this book was a novel more than a few people are like is it a novel and even after they've read it they feel like it's a novel I mean, clearly didn't read it closely but you know like, uh, I think you know. Of course, it's a it's a work of nonfiction, and the difference between a work of nonfiction and a work of historical historical fiction, which you know you might maybe in historical f- fiction you might still find some of the same descriptions, right? You might find some of the some of the same techniques that I've used. But I'm bound by the truth. I can't make things up. Like, and so that's, that was always the sort of limitation of the project. was like, well, what do I have? What can I know? What's, what is unknowable, you know? You said you felt like there were three threads of the book. Can you say what
0: those three are and how they interact?
1: Yeah. So Slaves for Peanuts is a, is interwoven story of three characters. It is a book about the peanut is a character It's about the peanuts journey from South America to Africa, how it becomes involved in cropping systems and and these other kind of larger social, cultural, geopolitical shifts, you know, that's, Part of it. The second sort of character we focus on is, as I just mentioned, Walter Taylor and his mission for runaway slaves. And Walter Taylor is the vehicle for us to understand a little bit more about enslavement in general. But also, he's he's sharing with with the reader a kind of story about displacement, about community, about liberation, but also about colonialism by another means—a kind of like colonialism of the mind you know like so he's giving us all of that and the third story is the story of Latjor who is the Damel or the king of Kajor, which is the principal kingdom that we're interested in enslaved for peanuts and is the land par excellence for peanut agriculture and Latjor is by turn sort of like negotiating his relationship with with the French. So this is the story of conquest and how it's affected, how it's mediated, how Latjorie negotiates it and and, and fails ultimately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that offers a lot
0: of clarity about what's, what's happening in the book for folks who haven't read it. So one of the things that comes through in your book is the complicated timeline of when the slave trade was outlawed, how people continue to be Enslaved and how the practice differed in West Africa compared to how it was practiced in the U.S. And I was wondering if you could walk us through some of those differences. I know we touched on it earlier in the conversation. And why wasn't there a clean line when slavery ended? I think in some people's imagination, you just think, oh, well, when it ended, it ended.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, and then I think even in America, that's not particularly true, right? Like, right, like, so we had a long reconstruction and then a backlash and then Jim Crow and, like, right. So are those things slavery? No, but are they um, extension of unfree labor that and, and systems of exploitation that lock people into Certain circumstances, we have, we have to think more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I like to say that the our American understanding of slavery. You know, I had someone in one of my very earliest interviews. He said, "Well, you know, what wasn't America the the biggest system of slavery in the world and in, in, in history?" And I was like, "Not at all. Not by far. <laughs> not you know." Like even in the in the contemporaneous period, like there were more slaves. I think for certain, Brazil was a larger slave society, hands down. Let's just let's just call that right. Like so that, that's an easier one. Brazil had a larger slave on orders of magnitude larger than the United States. But I even I think, do not quote me. But I even I think that like a small country like Barbados may have had more uh, enslaved people come to Barbo- Barbados and then die apparently. But like. Come, you know, be imported into Barbados than the United States ever had. So, like, the, these are kind of uh, U.S. centric musings, you know, from our our public discourse that we think we're every we're the biggest invested in everything, even slavery, you know. So, like, but um, of course, it's not true. But that the also that experience of, of slavery, we have a kind of idea about what that meant. But at the same time, of course, there there there. There was enslavement in other places, and in Africa, there was a system of, of slavery that already existed. And that, that system of slavery mm, changed and altered slightly over the course of the Atlantic slave trade. The Atlantic slave trade had an impact not only on African societies, but on, on like enslavement in those societies. In many parts of Africa and many parts of West Africa, in in this general area of kind of like the Sahel, this general area of Western Africa, there are different kinds of categories of enslavement. So you might have trade slaves. So like those were probably freshly taken enslaved people who had been captured, especially in this period, because there's a lot of upheaval Mm -hmm. captured by war, but could be any number of other types of ways to be... Enslaved, and so the that enslaved person could be sold you know and anywhere and was treated like um, was treated like money essentially was a was a was a commodity was an object of trade. There is another sort of category of enslaved person that's typical, that's slave of the, of the house, essentially, house slave. But it's not exactly house slave in the sense that we have in America, right? But it's a person who was probably born into slavery and whose relationship to their enslaver has shifted into something that's a little bit closer to kinship. I would not say it is full kinship, but they they're on a kinship spectrum, let's call it. And those house slaves should not be sold, right? So there was an interdiction on the sale of of such people. Then, you know, what is their function? What happens exactly? You know, there's a lot of sort of gradations that depend on places and, like, maybe how, how much do those people really want their freedom in general because they're existing in kind of, like, system of kinship, which might end in them being able to have land or, like you know, get married or have enough money to pay a dowry or whatever. So, like, maybe, like, that's that's a different kind of condition. I think a lot of the the enslaved people, like, in the mission for runaway slaves were, were clearly, like, fresh, fresh, you know, freshly captured people or, or had been captured at some point. Like, you know, I had... I have one chapter that I really like. Some people are, are divided about that, this chapter. Where I, it's called The Fifteen Captives of Njakin And it's a deposition, in fact, of this man in and had a number of enslaved people on his farm, but where he was not allowed to have enslaved people. And so then he was prosecuted, essentially. And so the deposition they made of these enslaved people and their stories are just so fascinating because you understand, like you know, how far they've come. There was even a man in that deposition who who spoke no language that anyone knew. It's like, who knows where he came from? So it's really interesting to think about people who had been caught in, in a war. This one woman was caught in a war and then sold for, I forgot, it's like a kilo of salt or something like that, right? She sold for like nothing on the desert side and then sold to Moors who sold her. I think she was caught somewhere in Mali and then sold to sort of like Moors, like Mauritanian who kind of, like, went up the river and sold her in San Luis. Right, so, like, there's this um, interesting interplay there that I found really fascinating. It's just a lot more complicated than I think
0: we in the U.S. typically think about it, if we're
1: thinking about it at all. (laughs) Yeah, nobody, very few people (laughs) think about it. But, yeah, I mean... That's, uh, in a way, part of the goal of the book was to um, tell, you know, tell all the stories. So to tell the complex stories that we're not just looking at one way of seeing things, but to understand the full breadth of the thing and all of its contradictions and to to look at it with with clear eyes. Well, it's a really
0: interesting story. It's a really, it was a really great book. So thank you for, for writing it and for talking with me.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your interest.
0: Jory Lewis is an author and award winning journalist writing about agriculture and the environment. She's a 2018 recipient of the prestigious Witting Grant for Creative Nonfiction. Her book, Slaves for Peanuts, was published in 2022 by The New Press. Slaves for Peanuts is a fascinating book with interwoven stories and complexities we can't fully cover in an episode of Earth Eats. I guess you'll have to read the book for yourself. We have links to Joy Lewis's work on our website, eartheats.org.
1: Is produced and edited by Kate Young, with help from Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Samantha Shimanauer, Peyton Wellie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniella Richardson.
0: Special thanks this week to Jory Lewis. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron
1: and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.